Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your one and only full-time permanent host of the show, Eric Trexler. But today I am joined by a special temporary guest co-host. His name is Greg Knuckles. Greg, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on. How are you doing today? Doing well. How are you? I am doing great. Uh, we've got a lot of good content planned for this episode, but before we get into that, uh, another reminder here. We are, let's see, this episode's going up on Thursday, which is Thanksgiving Day. So if uh, if you're in the United States celebrating Thanksgiving, uh, hope you enjoy it. Uh, that also means it's right in the middle of our big Black Friday sale for Mass. Uh, so Mass is our monthly research review. It stands for Monthly Applications in Strength Sport. Uh, our big sale goes from November 22nd to November 29th. We do it every year around Black Friday time. And uh, yeah, it's our biggest, best sale of the year. It's a really good one. So Mass, if you're not familiar, is uh, our research review with 10 pieces of content per month. It's written by me, Greg, Dr. Eric Helms, and Dr. Mike Zordos. Uh, and as I mentioned in our last episode, there's a, a pretty big announcement for the upcoming issue. Uh, we are expanding the segment that we call Research Briefs or the uh, section of Mass. So uh, Research Briefs is really cool. You started it. You pioneered the idea. It's shorter summaries of many studies. Uh, and so what's exciting is that starting December 1st and every issue after, the Research Briefs section is expanded, which effectively doubles the number of studies that we cover every month when you can compare to like the first issue ever. You look like you had something to, to say. I was just going to say, if, if people know anything about me, you should you should know that I'm always a pioneer in the general field of brevity. Yes. Uh, that that has always <laughs> been my been my specialty. <laughs> That's one of our biggest challenges. And, and so with... Just expanding it into a new medium. Yeah, as as the director, producer, and chief content creator for this podcast, one of my biggest challenges is trying to get some more words out of you, get a little <laughs> bit more engagement. Um, but yeah, so so uh, research briefs is expanding, which means we're we're really substantially increasing the study coverage every month. But you know, when it comes to mass, it's not just about summarizing studies. It's always written with the purpose of emphasizing practical application. So if you're really into fitness for your own purposes, or if you are a coach or a trainer who works with clients, what we try to do with mass is take the newest research available that is directly applicable to what you're doing, break down the research, describe what it means, and really focus on how you would apply it to your training or the training and nutrition habits of your clients. Uh, so during the Black Friday sale, it's our lowest prices of the year. Uh, if you sign up during that sale, you get locked in at your subscription price. Uh, so you can really take advantage of that lower monthly rate. Uh, we do have discounts for our monthly subscriptions in addition to our annual and our lifetime subscription options. If you're not certain if you're ready to subscribe, you can check out a free issue. You can find that at strongerbyscience.com slash mass best of with hyphens between those words. And like I said, the sale ends November 29th. Another perk, uh, I'm about to sneeze, but I might hold it in. Another perk is if you sign up during the sale. Uh, True professional. Th this, yeah, this is serious on-air talent. Uh, if you Say sign what up- what you will about Rush. I never heard him sneeze on air. That is pretty wild. Uh, I know the pros have a sneeze button, but that still, if you're on camera, you can't just bail. Uh, yeah, he, he must have just never sneezed. Anyway, 
Uh, if you sign up during the sale, another perk is that uh, there's a charity component. Uh, so 100% of your first month's payment will go to charity uh, if you do a monthly subscription or if you do an annual or a lifetime subscription, $21 uh, is going to be going to that charity. And the charity is uh, oriented, kind of aimed at uh, reducing hunger and supporting food banks in the United States. Uh, another way to support the show, if you feel so inclined, would be to subscribe to our diet app called Macro Factor. And of course, a third way is to use the discount code SBSPOD when you're checking out at BulkSupplements.com for a 5% discount on your order. Okay, moving on. Road to the stage. How is it going, Greg? Uh, road to the stage is uh, currently on pause, uh, but that's a good thing. It's been a very productive pause. Um, I had a, can't really call it a short term goal. I, I had a moderate term goal of getting below 235. Uh, that's what I weighed, uh, just before getting married back in 2013. So, uh, I am now lighter than I have been in what I would personally consider my adult life, which is nice. Um, so yeah, I, I wanted to get there before the holidays. Uh, glad I made it. And for the holidays, I don't want to uh, face the expectation of continuing to lose weight when there's Thanksgiving leftovers and and holiday treats in the house. Holiday beers, which are very underrated. Holiday beers, yeah. Um, oh man, what what did I just get? <sighs> Doesn't matter. Whatever. I I, I got some pretty good. Uh, Christmas Belgian ales that I'm blanking on the name of. Anyway, nice. um, so yeah, uh, shifted back to maintenance, and uh, that's going that's going really well. Um, this is the first time in a while, uh, first time that I can re remember <laughs> that uh, I've lost a pretty substantial amount of weight. Uh, you know, ended my my active intentional period of weight loss. And uh, didn't immediately just like gorge myself and gain back 10 pounds. Um, and, and I think one of the major reasons for that is that I, I have been taking things slowly enough to develop better habits this time around. So like by the numbers, um, <clears throat> and, and I mean, this relates to pretty much everything we talk about, that as long as you're making progress, like good things add up over time. Um, but up to this point, I've been cutting, I, I think, slower than just about anyone would would recommend or like below the bottom end of like uh, recommended rates of weight loss that, that people would give. Like, <clears throat> you know, most of the time people will say like, ah, you're good to lose about uh, half a percent to one percent of your body weight per week. And if you go slower than that, um, you know, th that's fine. But really all you're doing is just like prolonging uh, prolonging your cut and you, and you don't really get anything for it. Um, but in my case, I think it's been pretty clutch. So I, I've lost like 31 pounds over the last eight months um, or close to nine months. So it's it's been at a rate of like about 0.3% of my body weight per week, 0.3, 0.4%. Uh, less than a pound per week, starting at a body weight of 266, which is a pretty slow rate of weight loss. Um, 
but the benefit of that is the deficit I've been in has been small enough that I, I've basically been able to develop new habits such that I've been close enough to maintenance that I'm um, like developing a new way for myself to eat that should be sustainable. So uh, shifting back to maintenance this time, I didn't necessarily feel deprived or super hungry uh, as this phase of my cut was finishing up. So I didn't like feel the need to go out and eat a bunch of stuff. Like currently my, my approach to maintenance has been to just keep eating exactly like I was when I was dieting, but then just have another like three, 400 calories left over at the end of the day for a snack or to drink a beer or two. Um, so like fundamentally not much has changed. And that was, that was possible because I never felt particularly deprived on my diet. Um, so yeah, uh, that, that has all been good. Um, so I, I'm like mid, I'm, I'm about halfway from where I started to where I want to be, uh, yeah. with this dot, like longer term, uh, diet. Uh, and this, this little, uh, mile post makes me optimistic that, that I'm going to be able to keep it off. Um, you know, just because like my, my experience with maintenance thus far, uh, has been a lot better than, than it has been previously when I've lost a fair bit of weight. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, it's such a shift in the way you approach dieting, but like, I think a lot of people when they begin a diet, they immediately restrict as much as they can feasibly do in the short term, mm -hmm. right? They, they maximize their restriction and say, okay, this is the lowest calorie intake that I can tolerate in the short term. And then they stick with that for as long as they can manage it. You know, so the lowest tolerable calories for the longest tolerable amount of time. And then eventually you get to a point where they're like, okay, I'm going to shift to maintenance, but they, they have this long, uh, process of being overly restrictive for an extended period of time and kind of reach what's functionally like a breaking point. And that leads into what you were describing where it's like, okay, shifting to maintenance then becomes a pretty turbulent process that often involves overeating more than was planned and some weight regain. Uh, but taking a slower approach, even if it's not the exact percentage that people often recommend, uh, like you said, it, it's it's a much more enjoyable process. It's a smoother process. And you can get to these mileposts, these mile markers and say, I'm going to pause it here without any major turbulence in that process. Yeah. So it's, it's a really nice way to approach it. Yeah, I, I'm basically, I, I think ultimately I'm going to accomplish in a year and a half, two years, what I could have done in six months if I was quite a bit more aggressive. But ultimately, I'm more concerned about like, where am I going to be in five years? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I think that this, I think that this approach will be more sustainable. Um, and yeah, I, I, I mean, like I just said, I, the, I, I've been losing, uh, like I said, a, a, somewhere in the neighborhood of like 0.8 pounds per week or so. Yeah. Um, and I, I can do that. I can do that without feeling deprived. Like right. uh, I, I'm sure, I'm sure as I lose more weight, I will get hungrier and hungrier. Um, but I mean like uh, overall, like 
eating basically like I would if I were at maintenance, but just kind of cutting out a beer, cutting out a snack here and there. Um, like, I, I think that that's helping me build the skills that I'll need to sustain this where, whereas like if I would have just lost all of the weight in six months, I, I don't know if, if I would have those skills. Right. Good stuff, man. That, that's awesome. Tell me about, uh, tell me about the road to Athens. The road to Athens is treacherous. It really is. Uh, so I kind of committed to the outline before I did my, my big run this past weekend. <laughs> uh, so I wrote in Saturday morning run 12 miles time. And then I left it blank. Uh, I filled out the time and the time I put in is yes, because I did in fact cover 12 miles on Saturday. They were 12 of the ugliest, most labored miles you've ever seen. It felt like I was running with uh, cinder blocks attached to my feet, uh, but it got done. And I was actually really stoked because I, I didn't just think about turning around. I literally turned around because uh, the way I was doing it was six miles out, six miles back. I was probably four and a half miles out and I literally turned around and only made it about 10 steps in the wrong direction and then say, said, damn it, you got to do this because it's in the outline already. <laughs> so then I turned <laughs> back around. And so if anybody was passing by on the trail, they're probably, what the, what the hell is this guy doing? Uh, but no, I, I went six miles and then I went six miles back, uh, at the six mile marker. It, it, it kind of sucks because the push up to that turnaround point is a fairly nasty uphill grade. Uh, so I, I really had to push it and, uh, I stopped for a moment at that turnaround point to make sure I wasn't having like an asthma attack, <laughs> uh, or some kind of anaphylactic reaction. And it turns out, nope, just out of shape. So good. I, I, for the first time in a while felt like I could not oxygenate my body. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, took a few deep breaths and was good to go. So, uh, the road to Athens is going well and I'm pretty stoked about it. So I'll, I'll continue to provide some updates. And as we move forward, I'll talk a little bit more about my strategy, uh, for how I want to continue to develop these, uh, different, uh, you know, energy systems and, and endurance and things like that. But, my starting point so far has been to emphasize variability. So like I said, my, my big hurdle usually is lower extremity injury due to overuse. And a big contributor to that, in my opinion, is just having the same exact running stride, step, 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 times hundreds of thousands. It, there's no variability in that movement. The tissues are being strained in the exact same way every single repetition or step. Uh, and I think when you're not accustomed to that mileage yet, if, if you're trying to overdo the volume before you've built up, uh, the, the tolerance for that at the tissue level, you can run into some issues. One of my big, uh, one of my secret weapons when I first get into running is trail running, uh, trail running, first of all, is way more enjoyable because there's trees and stuff. Uh, I get very bored on a treadmill or just on a flat road trail running when you have to navigate some root systems. Uh, the downside of course is you're, you might fall, uh, and you open yourself up to ankle injuries. You open yourself up to foosh injuries or falling on an outstretched hand. Uh, but if you can avoid those instances, uh, I find it very helpful as you're navigating root systems and different, uh, terrain when trail running, each stride is a little bit different. There's a lot more variability in the movement 
And so you're not doing the same exact impact over and over. So both for enjoyment purposes and for slightly, you know, physiological purposes, starting out with trail running was a huge, uh, a huge, uh, trick that, that, that I had up my sleeve at this point, I'm able to put in some pretty serious mileage on flat ground. So I've kind of, uh, gotten past the the need to have a whole lot of trail running but i still like to mix it in from time to time have i ever told you my one and only trail running story did it end with a fall uh something arguably worse okay so um yeah where where i grew up there weren't many trails There, there was a lot of nature but uh the only place within comfortable driving distance that had trails was uh was the park rich park uh and and those didn't seem to be particularly amenable trails for running just because like Rich Park is kind of built at the bottom of a, a top topographical bowl. And so the whole thing, you're just running up and downhill the whole time. Yeah. Um, so w- when I ran, I would just always run on the the little road where I grew up. Um, it was fine. Not much traffic. Uh, so th- that was always my approach. Um, so one time uh, this guy, Abe, uh, said, Hey, I'm going trail running. Do you want to come with me? And I said, okay, sure. Like I'll, I'll roll the dice. I'll give it a shot. Uh, so we went to Rich park and, uh, went out, started running, having a good time. And then, uh, we're going over, uh, this bridge that's over this little Creek. And I feel a very sudden sharp pain in the bottom of my foot. There was, uh, there was an exposed nail coming out of the bridge from where, where a board had pulled off. And so I had, I had a rusty nail about two inches up into the sole of my foot. Uh, Uh, and at this point, at this point we were, I mean, rich park isn't big. Um, so we, we weren't that far from the parking lot, but we were probably a good three quarters of a mile from the parking lot. I would say, uh, not, not three quarters of a mile into the run, but like, you know, as the crow flies. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, I gingerly uh, lifted my foot straight vertically up off of the nail um, and yeah, had to had to very gingerly make my way back to the parking lot. And uh, like I said, the nail was very rusty. And so I'm, I'm sure it wasn't particularly good for me. And I uh, I would say maybe like <laughs> three minutes into our little hobble back to the parking lot. I was faced with a situ- uh, uh, scenario because um, my foot was starting to swell very quickly. And so I was just like, do I keep my shoe on and just like compress the shit out of my foot? Um, or like, do I take my shoe off and try to make it back again? Like walking through the woods, uh, already found one exposed nail. Like, do, do I want to make that trek barefoot? Um, so anyway, left the shoe on, uh, and you know, this, these were just like standard basketball shoes. So like they had laces, but like there was so much pressure of my foot against the inside of my shoe that like it had tightened just like the standard bow knot of my shoelaces enough that it was challenging to get my shoelaces (laughs) undone. Um, so anyway, had to go to the hospital to make sure nothing too serious was going on. Got another tetanus shot. Um, anyway, haven't been trail running since. Yeah, I don't blame you. So (laughs) look out for turning your ankle, look out for falling and look out for that as well. Uh, results may vary. 
All right. So uh, moving on, feats of strength. Uh, who is doing strong stuff? Uh, so I just have one this week, and this is, uh, I think, a very cool feat of strength. So uh, Bev Francis recently stepped back on the platform. Um, I don't think we've mentioned her in feats of strength before. Nope. And there's a reason for that. Uh, she has not competed in 36 years, uh, but she is back on the platform at the spry age of 66. Uh, competing in the six or uh, competing at 62 and a half kilograms or 138 pounds. She squatted 95 kilos, benched 60 and deadlifted 120 in pounds. That's 209, 132 and 264. Um, she won the meet in her age and weight division, which means that she is still undefeated for her entire competitive career. So a little bit about that competitive career. Uh, she previously competed from 1977 to 1985 in the process, winning six consecutive uh, IPF world championships. And she was also the first woman to ever bench press over 300 pounds, um, which is a huge milestone. Uh, and I think at the time she bench pressed 300 I think the next heaviest female bench of all time was like 260. So she was she was way ahead of the field in her day. Um, so yeah, after she won her sixth consecutive world championship, uh, she basically, I think, decided like, you know what? I've done enough in powerlifting. Let's try something else. Uh, so she got into bodybuilding and uh, ended up the runner-up in the Miss Olympia contest twice in 1990 and 1991. And, uh, it, it, there, there is a story behind that 1991, uh, Miss Olympia that, uh, is on her Wikipedia page that you should go read. Sounds like a, sounds like a complete hose job. Um, in 1990, she had been told that she was, uh, not quite big enough to, uh, dethrone the winner, Linda Murray. And so, uh, like earlier in her career in her first bodybuilding shows, she had been told that she was too big. And then like the judging standards of female bodybuilding changed. They started to reward more size. And so she was told in 1990, like, Oh, you're the runner up. Cause you're not big enough. So she said, fuck you guys. I'm going to get, I'm going to get freaky huge. And so she, she went out and put a lot of muscle on her frame between 1990 and 1991. Uh, in 1991, was the first time that the Miss Olympia had ever been live broadcast on ESPN, which that's very cool. Like early nineties, yeah. uh, not only Mr. Olympia, but Miss Olympia on ESPN, truly, uh, truly good times for the iron sports. So anyway, it was on ESPN and she was in the lead after, after prejudging, uh, like leading up to the night show and uh, her understanding and the understanding of everyone else was that the night show was was basically just a pageant. Like you're getting up there, you're going to flex, you're going to put on a show for the audience. But the winner had already been selected because that's apparently how it worked. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> she she fully expected that she already had the win locked up. Uh, but then somehow out of nowhere, she still ended up getting second and Linda Murray beat her again. And the speculation is that since it was on ESPN, um, there were maybe some prods from higher up saying like, you know what, actually we don't want to 
reward mass mass monsters in Miss Olympia because maybe that's not going to be good for viewership. Um, so that that's the that's the speculation that exists. Um, anyway, she was in addition to being uh, a, just a groundbreaking powerlifter, she was an excellent bodybuilder who, for my money, should have won a Miss Olympia. Um, and uh, also, before she got into either one of those, she held the Australian national record for the shot put throw. <laughs> so uh, one of the more impressive total careers of any iron sport athlete ever. Um, she's... I don't know if there if there's anyone else who is in both the uh, International Powerlifting Federation Hall of Fame and the IFBB Hall of Fame. Uh, if there is, it's certainly not many people. Uh, she does hold that distinction. Uh, and then, so you know, after she got done with bodybuilding, because I, I think after that uh, 1991 runner-up in the Miss Olympia, she basically just said, "You know what? Fuck it. Too much politics and bodybuilding. I'm done with this." So then she started a gym. Uh, it was previously a Gold's Gym, and then I think in 2005 it rebranded as Powerhouse Gym. Uh, but it's been called the East Coast Mecca uh, as a as a kind of term of homage to the Mecca of bodybuilding, Gold's Gym Venice. Um, so it's it's arguably the best bodybuilding gym on the East Coast. So she, you know, ran that for a long time. Um, and I mean, so many great bodybuilders have trained there. And uh, I, I have never been to her powerhouse gym, but I, as I understand it, it's absolutely incredible. Um, so anyway, I think she's retired from that now and is just back home in Australia, uh, just hanging out and getting back on the powerlifting platform. So still, still very strong uh, for a woman her size and certainly a woman her age. Uh, and like I said, w one of the most decorated uh, iron sport individuals that there's ever been. So uh, if you didn't know the name before, you know it now. Uh, Bev Francis, absolute legend. Uh, back where it all started, back on the powerlifting platform. And uh, I don't know if you love to see it, but I love to see it. That's awesome. And, you know, I did recognize the name bev francis from the gym I, I i didn't understand uh the entire history of her competitive career mm -hmm. and how decorated an athlete she is uh i also can empathize with her um a lot of people were saying in 2017 when i did my my first pro competition in <laughs> bodybuilding that society wasn't ready for that kind of muscularity and a lot of people are saying i don't i don't make this claim but I did get a lot of letters and a lot of emails saying that if I wasn't so muscular, I probably would have secured the win. So <laughs> I have been in her shoes and those are not good shoes to be in. Um, that is also why I haven't competed since. Uh, it's just too frustrating. Understandable. Uh, okay. So um, my hope for this episode, like I said, this is airing on Thanksgiving Day. Many people will be busy watching parades with floats and, uh, you know, football and eating turkey and stuff like that. My hope is that this podcast will accompany you on your travels home. You know, after Thanksgiving, you probably got in an argument with your drunk relatives. They probably questioned all your life decisions uh, very critically. Uh, they probably argued with you about politics. On your ride home, you just need some stress relief. And that's what we're here for. 
we would never, Greg and I would never question your life decisions. We would never argue with you about politics. Okay. So we're here to uh, facilitate your drive home or your flight home. Uh, to, uh, to transition to the next segment here, some nice, easy listening. What I want to do is talk about mass a little bit more. This is a shameless promotion for the sale we have going on, but it's also good content uh, because mass content is perfectly in line with what we do with the podcast. Uh, so I mentioned earlier that we have a free issue, the best of mass issue, uh, which you can download and, and you can read to see if you like what's going what's going on in the pages of mass. Uh, just to give you an idea of what you might find in that issue. Uh, we've got improving muscle growth by individualizing training volume. That's an article by Greg. Uh, time to reframe the proximity to failure conversation. That's by Zordos. A progression framework for hypertrophy, a very practical article by Helms. Modest glycogen depletion may impact lifting performance more than you think. That is by me. Ribosome biogenesis influences whether high volumes cause more growth by Greg. Penalty, reduction in gains for interference, an article by Zordos about the interference effect. Protein distribution matters to an extent. That's by me. Females fatigue slower than males largely due to differences in blood flow. That's by you. And then we got videos, one by Zordos on volume cycling, a very, very popular topic in the lifting world, and a video by Helms, uh, translating nutrition guidelines to life. Uh, so a lot of very practical information in there, but also articles on some more like cutting edge topics, like, you know, new findings in the world of glycogen, new findings in the world of ribosome biogenesis. So that's what we try to do generally with mass. And in this episode of the podcast, we did want to take a little walk down memory lane and talk about some of our, some of our favorite stuff from the last year or so, uh, of mass writing. So I was brainstorming, thinking through some of my favorite stuff from the past year, and I know you're going to share some uh, some more in-depth summaries of, of your favorites from the past year or so. Uh, I can't make this list without talking about my article, which was called, Does Getting Lean Make Your Next Bulk More Effective? Uh, little did we know. The, yeah, the, the, this article <laughs> that proved to be uh, basically our entire content strategy for two months. <laughs> more than two months uh so so this article was uh, kind of pushing back against the very common recommendation that you know you, you hear it from time to time in the evidence-based fitness world that you should get leaner before you bulk uh that this would have potentially positive effects on inflammation levels or insulin sensitivity or any number of factors that would lead your next bulk to be more effective. You'd be able to gain a higher proportion of lean mass and a lower relative proportion of fat mass. That is kind of the concept. In this mass article, I kind of broke down my reasoning uh, for why I didn't think the evidence supports that contention. Uh, it got, you know, people read it, which is good. People commented about it. Uh, people tagged in their favorite fitness influencers and, and evidence-based fitness professionals. And then debates uh, followed from there, and then several articles back and forth, rebuttals and rebuttals to rebuttals, and then rebuttals to those. Yeah, you, you can think of of this mass article as the pre-buttle to the rebuttal to the rebuttal. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we were on Jeff Nippard's channel, uh, had a roundtable that I thought was really constructive uh, with Mike Isretel and uh, Menno Henselman's. So this was an article that. Uh, 
I loved writing it because I think the topic is very interesting. Uh, and I've always been quite skeptical of the claim that you should get leaner in order to make your next bulk more efficient in terms of uh, lean tissue accretion. Uh, so this article is really where it all started. Uh, and we had some really uh, constructive and fruitful conversations back and forth in the articles and the debates that followed. But ultimately, uh, you know, I, I think if you want to catch up with that, the the series of articles on strongerbyscience.com were really nice because they started with this core argument, which did hold up throughout the, the conversations back and forth. But because the arguments kept going further and further, we supplemented it with those articles on strongerbyscience.com. We did our our, basically our own little non-systematic meta-analysis, I guess quasi-systematic meta-analysis where we got individual participant level data to look at how baseline body fat influences, uh, you know, success rates in a following, uh, you know, hypertrophy focused training program and things like that. Uh, so man, that was quite an adventure and it all started in the pages of mass. Uh, Another series of articles I really liked writing uh, within the past year was about meal frequency and, and more specifically looking at protein distribution. So with meal frequency, back in the day, everybody's talking about meal frequency uh, within the context of if I eat more meals per day, will I speed up my metabolism? I, I feel like everybody at this point has gotten off that particular bandwagon and if anything is going the other direction and now it's trendy to have fewer meals, right? So it used to be eight meals a day was really fashionable. Now it's like one meal a day is really fashionable. Uh, and in these articles, I've talked about, you know, how empirically what seems to happen when we increase from two meals a day with sufficient protein up to three meals a day with sufficient protein, or what happens when we increase from three meals a day up to six meals per day with sufficient protein. And in the context of writing these articles, I always felt that three high protein meals a day was better than two. Uh, and in the course of writing these two articles, they largely confirm that particular perspective. Uh, when, and when I say better, I'm talking in terms of supporting hypertrophy uh, and, and building muscle. What was interesting is I used to tell people three to five meals a day is probably the sweet spot. In the process of writing these articles, uh, the evidence challenged that perspective and suggested that three to six, you know, three meals per day and six seemed to be fairly equivalent in terms of outcomes. So I used to cut it off and say three to five. Uh, it was harder to justify cutting that off at five instead of six after digging into some of this newer literature. And ultimately, that's what mass is all about. It, it, it's about looking at the newer evidence as it comes in and continuing to update recommendations and prior beliefs. You know, So uh, that's my favorite thing about being a contributor to mass is that we literally have to stay on top of the literature. Like we don't have a choice. We can't rest on our laurels and say, nope, I made my recommendations in 2013 and those are in stone, you know, uh, which is something that you kind of do see. <laughs> like there are some people who haven't really revisited uh, their kind of standard recommendations for quite some time. Uh, so yeah, that, that was one article that made me really question some of those uh, preformed uh, recommendations. Now, Another series of articles that has become more and more important to me over time is I wrote a couple articles about vegan diets. One was a shorter term study that was, you know, heavily supplemented with mycoprotein, looking at muscle protein synthesis rates over several days. And that's an important uh, consideration. So in these mass articles, we sometimes when it's useful, 
get into some of the nitty gritty details about methodology. And one of the things I've said on the show previously is that sometimes people get a little bit too excited about extrapolating muscle protein synthesis results to hypertrophy over time. But it's important to recognize that there are some muscle protein synthesis studies that are more applicable or more generalizable than others. So when you're looking at muscle protein synthesis rates over a long stretch of observation time, so over days rather than hours, that can increase the generalizability when you're trying to make inferences about hypertrophy. Another aspect is training status and doing unaccustomed exercise. So if you're doing something that's totally unaccustomed, uh, you know, if you're untrained and you go through a brutal exercise bout and they're looking at muscle protein synthesis rates over the next four hours, it is very, very difficult to make a strong case that that's going to correlate well with hypertrophy. But if you're looking at rates over several days with a less extreme exercise protocol that's not quite as unaccustomed, now you're getting closer to making some, some generalizable inferences. Uh, so the first paper I wrote in this series was looking at muscle protein synthesis over a few days. And that vegan diet, which was supplemented with a lot of mycoprotein, which is a, a fung fungi-derived protein source. Uh, funny story is they used to say it comes from mushrooms. And then somebody was like, dude, that just absolutely doesn't come from mushrooms. <laughs> and then they're like, okay, okay, okay. It comes from fungus. Sorry. Uh, but yeah, they got in trouble for that. But anyway, uh, that vegan diet, as long as protein was high enough, and as long as, as, as I already mentioned, meal distribution and protein distribution was sufficient, as long as you're getting three or four at least high quality, uh, you know, uh, servings of protein, the vegan diet and the omnivorous diet, you know, the results were quite comparable, quite similar. But I still wasn't totally sufficiently convinced because again we're talking about a few days of muscle protein synthesis we're not talking about 12 weeks of hypertrophy then the next study comes along a few issues later uh, where they actually did look at hypertrophy at, at multiple different levels uh you know lean body mass they looked at uh cross-sectional area of the muscles themselves they, they looked at hypertrophy at several different levels uh 12-week intervention, resistance training with uh, either an omnivorous diet or a vegan diet that was supplemented this time with soy protein, which I was stoked about because now we're not saying it has to be mycoprotein. Now we're just talking about any reasonably high-quality vegan protein source that's helping people achieve a sufficient intake of protein. You know, So we're talking about 1.6, 1.8 grams per kilogram per day uh, within this context. And once again, the vegan diet uh, had very comparable results compared to the omnivorous diet, as long as both of them had plenty of protein uh, and as long as protein distribution was suitable. So those two articles I thought were really meaningful because we've all, you know, the, the standard recommendation is like, well, you can, you can do vegan or vegetarian, but man, that's going to be an uphill battle. You have to make some really huge uh, concessions or really huge modifications to ensure adequacy of that diet. For muscle building purposes, the newer research along those lines is, is indicating the opposite that, that those, you know, vegan and omnivorous diets within those, uh, those parameters I mentioned are probably more comparable than we've been treating them in the past. Would you refer to this line of research as a game changer? Uh, perhaps 
I would, but who could possibly pay the copyright fees? Uh, <laughs> no, but it, it is. Uh, I, I did make a game changer pun in one of the titles. Uh, it was it was vegan diets, not a game changer for hypertrophy, but a viable alternative. And ultimately, that was one of the things going all the way back. Man, that was like, was that like season one? The game changer stuff. I th I think it probably was. Uh, my whole thing with game changers, I, I considered making a more direct reference to that, to that content arc, but I was like, eh, without some context, who knows how many of our readers will, will get a nocturnal emissions reference, but yeah, <laughs> that's true anyway. And it's Thanksgiving vegan you know? diets. They're going to make your muscles big and your dick hard. That's right. I, I think that's the takeaway. Yeah. So, uh, that was my whole thing with game changers is like, dude, you could have you could have just made an argument that these are very viable alternatives, but they had to take it that other step and be like, dude, you will never have a, a minute of sleep with a flaccid penis again if you <laughs> yeah. adopt a vegan diet. I'm like, why do you have to do this? <laughs> you know, or yeah. dude, you're gonna set so many world records if you have everything about your diet the same, but it's just vegan instead of omnivorous. And it's like, dude, no one believes that. No one thinks that's true. Like, I, I don't know why why that would have to be the argument. Uh, but anyway, another uh, topic that we we cover frequently in mass, especially the last year or so, is the role of carbohydrate for the lifter. And this is an interesting area, and it gets more interesting as lower carbohydrate approaches become more and more popular. So keto got really big in, for lifters, I'd say probably like 2012. 2013 2014 seems about right so there's a, there is a minute there where everybody was really interested in it many people tried it i know i did i believe you did as well oh yeah i was keto for like a year and a half yeah i was keto for i think about half of a year um which apparently is one week too short to get the real <laughs> adaptation going uh and you also were probably about a week short as well i would assume i so i actually uh i was mostly keto in the run-up to my first uh my first powerlifting world records actually nice um you could have marketed that hard so i i did start eating carbs again maybe like a month two months out from the meat uh but anyway then i did my entire next training cycle with carbs and uh got a lot stronger and set more world records so yeah. I don't really think the presence or absence of carbs really made that much of a difference. Yeah, and that's really been the the real heart of the issue when it comes to carbs and how we discuss it in mass. Uh, and Helms and I have had a bunch of really constructive peer reviews. So when we write an article for mass, all of the authors peer review it. And sometimes, you know, we, we will get into extremely heated, highly personal arguments that involve a lot of uh, a lot of name calling, a lot of insults. And so Helms and I have, have gone back and forth on the carb articles, but ultimately the question is how much does a lifter really need them? Uh, and you know, in what context, and we've covered a lot of keto articles in mass. Uh, we, we've covered a lot of articles that discuss when to have carbs and how much, you know, how much carbohydrate to consume for the typical lifter. And generally speaking that, you know, the, the arguments come back to the fact that as a lifter, uh, if you're doing stuff 
in the kind of more hypertrophy focused rep range or higher, you know, if you're doing, if you're doing sets of three and sets of five, and that's making up the the basis of your training, you probably don't need a huge influx of carbohydrate to get through a training, uh, to a workout or a training program. So when you tell me that you had a really successful meat prep while doing keto, that doesn't surprise me in the slightest, uh, just because your training did not tax, you know, the glycolytic energy system to a significant degree. Oh yeah. I was doing that. That was the meat where I was doing like Bulgarian style training in the lead up. So a lot of singles, a lot of singles. Uh, and if I did a set of three, I was just like, ah, that's too much. I'm doing doubles tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, in that <laughs> context, it's like, you know, there, there's really not much of a physiological rationale to suggest that you need a really high amount of carbohydrate. Um, but when it gets into, Hey, I'm doing a more hypertrophy focused program, lots of eights, lots of tens, lots of twelves. Or if you're doing something like CrossFit and you're just going crazy with the glycolytic energy production in those contexts, you know, we've got a lot of articles that have gone into how much carbohydrate would be needed when it would be needed. Uh, and there have been some really fascinating studies about that uh, within the past year or so. Uh, but we don't just focus on carbs. Another thing we've talked about in the past year is fat restriction and how that impacts testosterone levels. Uh, and man, that is a really tricky conversation to have because you look at this literature, right? And there's plenty of studies indicating that if we do relatively, uh, I mean, not super severe fat restriction. If we're talking about going from like 40% of calories from fat down to 20%, that's like a fairly standard approach with, with some of these studies looking at the effects of fat restriction or maybe 35 to 15%. We're not talking about going on like a, a 3% fat diet or anything like that. And what's really fascinating is these studies do tend to show a reduction in testosterone and other related uh, androgenic hormones, right? O other androgens. Uh, but what's tricky is trying to sort through, you know, what is the perfect diet for testosterone if we assume that, that it actually matters all that much, which is a completely separate assumption. But there's research showing that really extreme carb restriction can negatively impact testosterone. There's research showing that really extreme fat restriction can also negatively impact testosterone. And there's just studies showing that simply reducing calories in general uh, will, will, will reduce testosterone. And studies showing that simply having a high ratio of protein to other stuff in your diet reduces testosterone, which is essentially the same thing as saying carb or fat restriction or mm -hmm. a little of both. So it gets really challenging when you try to sort through those details and say, what exactly is driving these reductions in testosterone? But one of the things I focus on in that particular line of articles, whenever I talk about fat and testosterone or testosterone boosters, my big question is what, what do you want this testosterone to be doing? You know, so how much, uh, the, the types of fluctuations in testosterone that we see, for example, in studies on testosterone boosting herbal ingredients, for example, uh, the magnitude of effect is really nowhere near large enough in the data that we've seen up to this point to suggest that it would meaningfully impact strength or hypertrophy or anything like that. I think the most you could maybe hope for with those types of ingredients, you know, dietary supplements to, to enhance testosterone or macronutrient modifications to enhance testosterone. The most you could really hope for is if you're kind of at the low end of the normal range, 
maybe getting a little bit of a boost that would get you to a spot where you feel other benefits of higher testosterone. Things like uh, your just general energy level subjectively or your libido, for example. I think that stuff is feasible. But when it comes to strength and hypertrophy, I think a lot of the really nuanced worrying about testosterone management uh, within the physiological range is probably not particularly constructive, not a, not the type of thing I'd spend a lot of time on. Um, now, one exception to that, if you have extremely low energy availability and your testosterone is tanking, you can very meaningfully reverse that through uh, various dietary interventions, which all point in the same direction, which is you got to have more energy available. Uh, mm -hmm. In that case, you can see people go from the high end of the normal range throughout a bodybuilding prep, go down to testosterone levels that are so low. I mean, when you look at some of the case reports or if you do a bodybuilding prep and you get your blood work done, uh, I don't know what my normal test is. I've never checked it when things are good. I only check it when things are bad. Uh, but, you know, I've heard of people who go from like 700 to like 110. Mm -hmm. over the course of a bodybuilding prep and it's really not all that unusual so in that case that's a big change <laughs> like i i think that matters uh and i think correcting that energy deficiency uh is a very straightforward approach to to rectifying that and i think the impact is huge uh but for not huge but it's meaningful it's tangible for for everything else you know that those interventions that claim to bump your testosterone from 350 to 385 uh I don't think you can do a whole lot with that. Uh, that brings me to you know one of the topics that comes up a lot in mass, especially in my articles, is uh, you know we talk about a lot of dietary supplements, and uh, just looking back over the last year or so, uh, I, I've covered ginseng, I've covered Dioscoria escalenta, testosterone boosters, CBD oil twice, uh, creatine, caffeine, dietary nitrate, vitamin D alpha lactalbumin, uh, pre and probiotics, hibiscus tea, um, it kind of treated as a dietary supplement in a way, uh, even though it technically is just a beverage, right? But uh, we, we get into a lot of dietary supplements, some of which are quite common. And so you see them on the page and say, oh, maybe I'll learn something new about, you know, uh, uh, an everyday supplement that has a lot of name recognition. But also I, I try to look at some of these other supplements that are lesser known, you know, and see, hey, should this be on your radar or not? Uh, two of the supplements that I've, I've talked about recently in mass, um, really fascinate me. Uh, and they are, they're not yet at a spot where I would enthusiastically recommend them, but they are on my radar. You know, they're, they're kind of, uh, I'm keeping an eye on them. One of them is capsiate or other capsaicinoids. So compounds that are structurally, uh, quite similar to capsaicin, which is what basically makes hot peppers very hot. Uh, and the other one is betaine and betaine. We've written about that in stronger by science. We had a whole article about it. Um, so the capsaicin literature is fascinating. There's now been papers showing, uh, enhancements in training volume enhancements in, uh, strength endurance enhancements in, uh, force like maximal force production and, uh, better training adaptations in, in a longitudinal trial. So better increases in, I believe, fat free mass and i believe bench press one rep max as well so that alone when you talk about those findings spread across four different studies that's enough to get your attention especially for a supplement that does not have a lot of research in general but one of the issues that i've talked about is the fact that we just need a lot of replication a lot of that 
uh, researchers coming from the same exact lab group, which is studying this basically the same exact study population every single time. And we talk about in science how important replication is, but we also like to see independent replication uh, in a variety of different contexts and populations. That helps us really understand what a supplement can and can't do. So capsiate and other capsaicinoids are on my radar. They've been written about in mass uh, several times now, uh, but I'm not quite ready to give them the official stamp of approval. Another thing that's interesting about capsaicinoids is their impact, slight impact on thermogenesis and hunger regulation. So capsaicinoids, there, there's a decent amount of evidence suggesting that they could have a slight impact on reducing hunger, reducing desire to eat, and increasing energy expenditure in the short window after they're consumed. So it's quite a fascinating supplement. And then betaine, uh, it's another one that's just on my radar. You know, uh, we've talked about this in the Stronger by Science article. Uh, there are plausible mechanisms. There is mixed evidence. So there are certainly some evidence showing benefits for body composition and performance. Plenty of evidence showing uh, no significant benefit. And it is one of those bodies of literature where you're like, you're just waiting for a pattern to truly form. I, I still think they need to test higher doses. I, I fully agree. Uh and it's one of the things I tiptoed into in my yeah. conclusions the last time I wrote about betaine because I want to be careful there. I don't want to tell people like, hey, go use a completely experimental dose that you have no idea how you're going to react to it. Uh, that's probably not the best way to do it. Rather, I, I'd like researchers. That's exactly how I would do it. <laughs> I, I know it is. But for the purposes of the podcast, it's not a recommendation. And uh, what I'd like to see is researchers kind of breaking out of the standard mold for these studies, which is usually 2.5 grams a day, always, every time, and uh, you know, mixed findings. What I'd like to see is some higher doses, because one of the things that we pointed out in that betaine article a while ago is betaine is often used in livestock applications. So trying to increase meat yield, uh, and in some cases, reduce subcutaneous fat storage in a variety of different livestock uh, models, right? So, th so there's research in chickens, there's research in pigs. I'm not sure if I've seen research in cattle, but... I, I think most of it is in pigs. I, yeah, a yeah. lot of it is in pigs for sure. And uh, the thing about livestock is like, dude, you don't want to waste a lot of money on nonsense food additives. Like th that's that's a serious thing. Uh, when you talk about just the general scale of a livestock operation, there's not a lot of wiggle room there to just be frivolously throwing around food additives that are costly that aren't actually being beneficial in terms of yield. And so uh, it, it's, it's funny because the term they use, I've read way too much agriculture research because of betaine. <laughs> the term that they often use is performance, mm -hmm. uh, which is basically just like, yeah, that was we raised that particular animal well uh, to, to have a high meat yield and it performed well for our purposes, right? But it, it would always throw me when I would read it, like it's a study about pigs and it's like, yeah, performance improved. I'm like, what were they doing? You know, like I, I'm thinking like a little pig race or something, like some get, kind get, of- get, get them on a little pig treadmill with a, <laughs> yeah. with a mask. Like, dude, VO2's up 8%. Yeah huge performance enhancement. But, um, but anyway, yeah, it's, it's just really difficult. And that alone is not a sufficient, uh, argument, right? You can't just say, well, farmers use it. I'm sure it's good, but it is something that you're like, man, but the doses they use are much higher. And farmers in many cases seem to be quite committed to betaine as an additive. 
and it seems to work across multiple species, including pigs, which are not a bad model. Like if, when it comes to animal models, pigs are pigs are often as close as we get before we start doing a human trial, you know? So I, I agree with you. I'd, I'd like to see more higher dose research there, but, uh, you know, the, the capsaicin stuff and the betaine stuff caused me to put together my, uh, my supplement tier system just to help me kind of organize my thoughts. Uh, and so that, that's a, a mass exclusive, uh, or an original. Um, but right now I consider both of them to be a tier three supplement, which is, you know, there's insufficient evidence at this time to conclusively determine their efficacy. So that, that means we can't definitively say that they do work for a given purpose, but we also struggle to, def to definitively say that they don't work for a purpose. Uh, so tier five is the worst, and that means that there's sufficient evidence to conclude that the supplement either harms health or harms performance. So tier five, you want nothing to do with. And then tier one basically indicates that there is very strong evidence to support reliable and meaningful effects, practically meaningful. So tier one is, is rarefied air. We're talking about creatine when it comes to strength and performance. We're talking about protein supplements only if they're getting you to an adequate protein intake. Uh, but there's not a lot of stuff going on at tier one. But uh, anyway, that's my rundown of some of my favorite observations, favorite pieces of content from the last year or so of Mass. And Greg, I know you've got a few uh, that, that you enjoyed as well. Yeah, how 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 far into this recording are we? I, I'm debating whether I want to do all three of these or just two. Uh, it's up to you, uh, you know, because I can trim all the stuff after. It's whatever you want to do. Uh, we're, we're less than an hour in, but getting close to an hour. Okay, all right. Let's... And people have a long journey home for their Thanksgiving, so yeah. I, I also got a lot of a lot of stuff to do today. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, this is very very professional uh, podcasting as we discuss. Uh, I don't really have time for this. You know what? This, <laughs> this is Thanksgiving week. Uh, we also have holidays we observe. I never take three days off but i'm about to so i'm i'm just trying to get a lot of shit done today i hear you well do as many as you like yep let's see what happens all right so um yeah there were there were a lot of studies this past year that i that i found interesting uh but i pulled out kind of three areas uh to elaborate on a little bit more um that hopefully you guys find interesting so th this first one um one of the one of my more recent hobby horses within the last like six months or so is uh, looking at the effects of range of motion on hypertrophy um, because I, there's a lot of, I, I mean, there has been for several years, a, a lot of just like chatter in the evidence-based fitness community about how uh, full range of motion training through a full range of motion is very important for hypertrophy. Uh, and I kind of don't think that full range of motion matters all that much. Um, I think that when people talk about the benefits of full range of motion training for muscle growth, I think ultimately they're just picking up on the benefits of ensuring that your reps do include the portion of the rep that involves uh, muscular tension at long muscle lengths. But I don't think the range of motion is all that important per se. So for example... Um, if you're doing something that has a where full range of motion is 120 degrees at a particular joint, I think that the benefits of training through a full range of motion rather than a partial range of motion 
is that when people talk about partials, they tend to just be talking about the top half of the range of motion. So for example, if you're doing bench press, uh, you lock the bar out between every rep, but you only go midway down to your chest. Um, so when, when people talk about partials, they think about something like that or like half squats, for example. Um, and so when you're using that as your model of partial range of motion training, what you do tend to find is that full range of motion training uh, improves outcomes. So training all the way from zero degrees of flexion to 120. Uh, but I, I kind of think that if you just train from 120 degrees to 60 degrees and cut out the top part, kind of the classic um, uh, constant tension training approach, I think that's just as good as training through a full range of motion. Because um, ultimately, I think it's less that just the total angular displacement at each joint matters. And it's more so um, ensuring that you are training through the part with long muscle lengths. And, and I kind of think the part where you're training through short muscle lengths, um, you know, just has a neutral effect. So whether or not you lock out each rep doesn't really matter all that much. So with, uh, with that introduction out of the way, I reviewed, uh, two studies in mass this past year that are directly relevant to that. Uh, so the title of the first one was partial range of motion training might increase muscle growth, uh, parentheses, if you do the right type of partials. So this was a study by Pedrosa and colleagues. Uh, the title was partial range of motion training elicits favorable improvements in muscular adaptations when carried out at long muscle lengths. Um, so in this study, uh, Five groups of untrained women uh, completed a 12-week training protocol. Uh, one of the groups was a non-training control group. Uh, and then the other four groups um, trained knee extensions for 12 weeks. So one of the groups did all of their reps through a full range of motion. One of the groups did all of their reps through a partial range of motion uh, in a decent bit of knee flexion. So basically the bottom half of the range of motion, which... Uh, coincides with long muscle lengths for the quadriceps. Uh, one group did partials, but just through the top half of the range of motion. So the part of the range of motion that would have, uh, th that would be through short muscle lengths of the quadriceps. One group did varied partial range of motion. So they did half of their reps, partials at long muscle lengths, half of them partials at short muscle lengths. And the final group was uh, just a full range of motion group where they, you know, did full range of motion reps. Uh, so they trained for 12 weeks and they looked at growth of the vastus lateralis and rectus femoris at uh, three different sites. So, or four different sites. So from a proximal site at 40% of femur length. So that's uh, if you go from the hip to the knee, uh, starting at the hip, going down 40% of femur length, that was the most proximal site. And then 70% of femur length, so closer to the knee, that was the most distal site. Um so yeah, uh, there were, I mean, there, there were a shitload of pairwise comparisons here, but the, the broad strokes are that, um, the partial range of motion at long muscle lengths group had overall the best hypertrophy response, uh, of all of the four training groups and, and certainly better than the control group. Um, but, but that group, the full range of motion group, and the variable range of motion partial group uh, all had pretty solid hypertrophy outcomes. The partial range of motion group, just training at short muscle lengths, 
uh, tended to grow quite a bit less than the other three groups, particularly in the distal parts of the muscle. So the 40 and 50% of femur length sites, the more, the more proximal parts, uh, tended to grow pretty well in all of the groups, but then the more distal sites tended to grow the best in the three groups that did involve training at long muscle lengths. Um, and, and like I mentioned, the group that just did partials at long muscle lengths got at least as good of hypertrophy results as any of the other groups and arguably better than any of the other groups. Um, so that, that was some, uh, direct evidence that the range of motion through which you're training partials matters a lot. And that if you're doing the partials at long muscle lengths, they may actually produce slightly more hypertrophy than training just through a full range of motion. Uh, and then there was a, a more recent study um, by Sato and colleagues that I just reviewed last month. Uh, elbow joint angles in elbow flexor unilateral resistance exercise training determine its effects on muscle strength and thickness of trained and non-trained arms. So in this study, subjects did unilateral preacher curls. Uh, there wasn't a full range of motion group in this study. It was just partials at long muscle lengths versus partials at short muscle lengths. Uh, and subjects were doing unilateral preacher curls. Uh, and, and the findings were very similar. So they had three different measurement sites here, uh, 50, 60, and 70% of humerus length. Overall, hypertrophy was greater in the group doing partials at long muscle lengths than the group doing partials at short muscle lengths. Uh, and the magnitude of difference increased as you moved towards more distal sites along the muscle. Um, and then when averaging all three sites together, the group doing the long, the long muscle length partials uh, experienced like 2.6 times more hypertrophy than the group doing short muscle length partials. Um, so again, not a direct comparison in that study to full range of motion training, but uh, very clear evidence that not all partials are created equal. Um, partials at short muscle lengths tend to not cause as much growth overall. And in particular, there's a pretty big difference at distal muscle sites. So like, for example, if you wanted... Uh, and, and, and this is going to depend to some degree on like tendon length and overall muscle architecture, but kind of like in a vacuum, if you just want like a big, like freaky horseshoe tricep that hangs over your elbow or just like big freaky quads that like look like they're about to swallow up your knees, uh, those are distal muscle sites and, and training through long muscle links tends, tends to be very important uh, for growth in those sites. And there's also uh, more evidence just from isometric training that, you know, not even doing reps, but just tension per se at long muscle links um, ten tends to promote uh, hypertrophy quite well. So there was a, a systematic review by Orenchuk and colleagues, I think in 2019, uh, isometric training and long-term adaptations effects of muscle length intensity and intent a systematic review. Uh, and, and one of the things they looked at in that systematic review was isometric training at long versus short muscle links, finding that uh, hypertrophy tended to be quite a bit greater when you did isometric training at long muscle links than short. Um, and there, there's also evidence, I think, that uh, including the part of the range of motion that coincides with short muscle links, so essentially locking out every rep um, maybe doesn't matter all that much and could potentially be 
slightly harmful for hypertrophy. Uh, and I think that probably depends on whether kind of the lockout position does keep you under tension or not. But there was a study by Godo and colleagues um, looking at triceps growth with uh, partial range of motion versus full range of motion, uh, barbell tricep extensions, basically skull crushers. Uh, one of the groups trained through a full range of motion, so from zero to 120 degrees of elbow flexion. One of the groups uh, did partials just through the mid-range of motion. So uh, at the bottom, they stopped at 90 degrees of elbow flexion, and then they went up to 45 degrees of elbow flexion, but they didn't actually lock the reps out. Uh, and in that study, I, I they didn't assess hypertrophy, I think, in the most using using gold standard methods. They, they used a regression equation based on uh, arm circumferences and skin fold thicknesses, which so, you it's know, been not, done, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's not the best way to assess hypertrophy. So take it with a slight grain of salt. But they, they did find that uh, estimates of tricep cross-sectional area derived from arm circumference and uh, skin fold thicknesses increased to, to a greater extent in the group that basically skipped lockout, uh, even though they didn't actually go down as far um, into elbow flexion on each rep. So I, I think that when you kind of triangulate all of that, um, I, I would definitely like to see more direct comparisons uh, specifically between long muscle length partials and full range of motion before I could make any sort of definitive statement. Um, because currently we do just have one study making that direct, direct comparison. Um, and it's looking at just single joint exercises in untrained individuals. So, you know, you probably don't want to put too many eggs in that basket. But I, I think that there are several different lines of evidence that one could point to to, to say that, you know, at worst, um, partials through a long partials uh, at, in in long muscle length positions rather than short muscle length positions. Uh, I think you can say at worst that's going to cause more hypertrophy than partials just through short muscle length positions. You know, uh, kind of for now discounting the comparison to full range of motion training. So I think we can very confidently say not all partials are created equal. Um, but I do, I do kind of think that, uh, if you do like quote unquote constant tension training, you do partials, but the part of the range of motion you're cutting out is like the lockout portion, the short muscle length portion. Uh, I, I kind of think that you're going to grow just as much as you would from doing full range of motion training and possibly slightly more. Um, and another thing I'll note is that when, when we talk about, uh, when we talk about the effects of range of motion on hypertrophy, I think it's also worth nuancing that just a little bit. Uh, so the, the differences don't seem to be um, kind of evenly dispersed across the length of a muscle. So if you compare kind of quote unquote normal partial range of motion training, so, you know, now we're talking half squats, bench presses that don't touch your chest, et cetera. Um, when we look at that type of partial compared to, either long muscle length partials or full range of motion training in studies that assess hypertrophy at multiple different muscle sites. What they tend to find is that for more proximal muscle sites, you actually seem to grow about the same amount regardless of range of motion. So, you know, uh, if you're assessing changes in quad size closer to the hip 
or changes in tricep size closer to the shoulder, for example. Um, seems like those proximal sites tend to grow pretty well, <laughs> regardless of how you're training, but that uh, either partials at long muscle lengths or full range of motion training that includes training at long muscle lengths, that tends to be pretty essential for fully growing more distal parts of the muscle. So overall, full range of motion training does beat short muscle length partials, but the the uh, effects aren't evenly distributed across the muscle. There, There is that regional component, which I personally think is kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, I suspect that some people at my gym kind of suspect that I'm a dumbass. Uh, and the reason is, I think, I think some people struggle to warm up to the idea of partials at short, uh, or I'm sorry, partials at, long muscle lengths well they also think you're a dumbass because you thought that simply the fact that a magnet wouldn't stick to you immediately after you got a vaccine <laughs> negated their argument that vaccines would stick to you immediately after you got a vaccine i'm not sure if we ever actually mentioned that on the show we, we did for sure <laughs> okay we did okay, so that that's a throwback uh at first i was like i don't think anyone has context for that no but um I think some people struggle to warm up to this idea of partials at long muscle lengths because uh, back in the day, you would call that cheating, right? So like, for example, a lot of times uh, I'll be doing bicep curls. This is one of the areas where I, I use a little bit of this, but I'll do full range of motion bicep curls until I can no longer. And then I will do a few extra reps at the end of doing partial range of motion and it'll be up to that sticking point, which is, you know, I'm training exclusively at longer uh, muscle lengths for, for those partials. And so I think the, the typical person passing by would say, look at this jackass who's counting these reps and he's like not even getting halfway up. Uh, but it's, it's intentional. Uh, and I think, you know, like you said, I, I don't know if it's necessarily doing too much, but like, it's a nice little supplementary thing to help me get a little bit more effort into that set. Is it going to pay off big time? I don't know. But I, I do similar things uh, depending on, you know, what I'm trying to accomplish in the set. But sometimes I'll do similar things for like a dumbbell incline press. I'll do full range of motion until I'm kind of struggling uh, at that kind of sticking point in the middle. Then I'll get some nice loaded stretches. I'll keep everything at the longer muscle lengths for my pecs mm -hmm. and get a few extra reps to, to, really, uh, to really grind out the set. And so I think the typical passerby would say those reps don't count. That guy's a jackass. But then I take off my top layer and I'm wearing a stringer and they say, holy shit, that looks like the kind of guy that is so muscular that it would hold him back at the professional yeah, bodybuilding he, he level. He wouldn't even have been able to win the 1991 Miss Olympia. They would have given it to someone less muscular. That's what they think. So, but when I'm not, when I'm not wearing a stringer and I have bulky clothing on, I don't think they can tell, you know, but anyway, I, I use a little bit of this partial range of motion stuff and it's pretty nice. I like it. Sweet. Uh, the, the area where, where I've always used it is uh dumbbell flies. Like I've talked about my love of the pec deck machine on yeah. this podcast oh, several yeah. times before, but I'm training in my basement now. Uh, you know, just have dumbbells, don't have a pec deck, don't have room for a pec deck. If I did, I definitely get a pec deck. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, I enjoy Dude, you don't need a whole kitchen. Just get rid of part of your kitchen and Fuck put in no, a pack. Absolutely deck. not. Um, but yeah, no. So I I like pec training. I think that um 
I think that I'm the only, maybe the only person in the world who has a pec dominant pull up. Like when your <laughs> when your arms are when your arms are above your head, your pecs do have slight shoulder extension functionality. And uh, when I'm good at pull ups, like w- when I've been doing pull ups somewhat frequently, and I can do a decent number in a set, I always get an enormous pec pump from pull ups. Like I, I think I get a, b- a bigger pec pump than lat pump. Um, anyway, I, I think that just about every upper body exercise I do somehow turns out to be pec dominant. Uh, so I, I like pec training. I just think it's fun. And so when I do dumbbell flies, I and I'm, man, this goes back to when I was like 12 years old and I was first introduced to the exercise. Um like I was doing like full range of motion, dumbbell pec flies on a bench in the local YMCA. Um, and this older gentleman comes up to me and he said, you want me to teach you how to do flies? And this guy, I think I may have mentioned him on the podcast before. He was one of my first training partners. I had two very fun training partners at that YMCA. One of them was this guy I'm about to mention. The other one was a bounty hunter. And... Um, <laughs> His name wasn't Dog, was it? His name, I shit you, this wasn't his real name, but everyone referred to him as Cornbread. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Cornbread the Bounty Hunter. (laughs) uh, If we ever do merchandise, we have to have a Cornbread (laughs) the Bounty Hunter character. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, both excellent training partners. They taught me a lot, and also they they both had uh, excellent stories. But anyway... um, completely neglecting the stories for now this was this was my first introduction to this older gentleman and he was in his either late 60s or early 70s but still had a he he still had a very solid physique um and yeah he 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 could tell that i didn't really know what i was doing so he's like you want me to teach you how to really do peck flies and i said okay sure absolutely i i would love to learn uh and so he, I think one of the reasons why I'm kind of open to the whole idea of long muscle length partials is that's all this guy did. Um, like, you know, he, he would do, he would do weighted pull-ups again, like in his late sixties, early seventies, he'd have like a, either a plate or a plate and a 25 hanging off of him, but he'd only do like a seven inch range of motion. Like by the time the top of his head was level with the bar, he was done. Concentric was over. Time to go back down. I actually like that as well. Uh, and, and he he approached everything the same way. So yeah. like, you know, he'd do dumbbell press, go all the way down at the bottom, push it up about four inches, go back down. Like that, that's how he approached all of his training. Um, so anyway, he taught me that method of pec flies. Like go down until you get a deep stretch, go up until like you still feel a lot of tension on the muscle, but it's not acutely stretched anymore. And then just go back down. So we're talking pec flies through maybe a six inch range of motion. Yeah. And like I'd done flies before cause I'd seen them in a magazine and someone big said, this is a good exercise. Uh, but like that was the first time that the next day my pecs felt absolutely destroyed. Yeah. So I was like, hell yeah, this is how I do flies now. And I've always done that. Like I, I never go all the way up on flies. Um, and I think that that's probably in a, a pretty extreme example just because the mechanical leverage is so low at the bottom and yeah. so high at the top. But I, I think a similar principle 
can apply to most exercises you do. Um, God, that guy was an excellent training partner as well. Uh, because no, never mind. I'm not telling that story. <laughs> Fair um, enough. Yeah. Okay. He he did a lot of things that could probably get him canceled in 2021 that were, I guess, fine in 2006. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So let's let's move on a little bit. Okay. Uh, let's talk about inter the interference effect and concurrent training a little bit. Let's do it. Um, the road to Athens segment of the last podcast was a hit. There were multiple people, and and by that I mean two or potentially three people uh, who asked for more concurrent training content on the podcast. Uh, so is that a representative sample of our listeners? Probably yes. not. But let's, uh, let, let's meet their needs right now. Let's do it. <laughs> Uh, so the title of the article I wrote was, does the interference effect get larger as training status increases? Title of the study I reviewed was development of maximal dynamic strength during concurrent resistance and endurance training in untrained, moderately trained and trained individuals, a systematic review and meta-analysis by Petrie and colleagues. Um, so in, in this uh, meta-analysis, I mean, you, you can probably tell what they did just from the title. Uh, they started with a systematic literature search. They uh, identified studies with um, healthy subjects between 18 and 40 years old. Um, the group, the studies needed to compare a group performing uh, both lower body resistance training and endurance training versus a group doing an identical resistance training program, but no endurance training. Uh, the subjects all needed to have the same training status, uh, Resistance training needed to occur at least twice per week at uh, a ten at an intensity of at least sixty percent of one RM. Uh, the endurance training needed to uh, at least be of moderate intensity, um, so not like walking programs or anything like that. Uh, and the studies needed to report changes in maximal squat or leg press strength. Those were the inclusion criteria. They found twenty-seven studies. Um, all of which were judged to be of either moderate to high quality. Uh, seven, seven studies were on untrained subjects, 10 were on moderately trained subjects, and uh, 10 were on trained subjects. I'll note that I don't necessarily agree with the, uh, the researcher's characterization of untrained versus moderately trained in this study. So they categorized a study as being on moderately trained subjects if the subjects... Um, were reported as being active. <laughs> so you'd only be counted as untrained if they reported that like people were completely sedentary. If someone was described as recreationally active, but not participating in resistance training, they'd still count them as moderately trained for this meta-analysis. I don't necessarily agree with that, but uh, yeah. Cause I mean, a lot of times for studies that are sampling like uh, college students, mm -hmm. for example, which is a huge percentage of studies it's like ah you're a college student you go to class every day you know maybe you play kickball twice a week moderately right. trained yeah you're, yeah you're, yeah yeah so uh i functionally just view it as trained versus untrained i i don't like the the untrained versus moderately trained distinction that they made in this study uh but anyway th that's what they did that's the nomenclature i'll use moving forward uh so just be aware that when i say moderately trained i'm talking untrained, but, but fairly active. Um, so anyway, they, they ran the meta three different ways. Um, 
First, they just looked at all effect sizes from all studies. Uh, second, they looked at uh, just studies where the endurance and resistance training were performed in the same session. So, you know, you show up at the gym, you run for 30 minutes and then you lift or you show up at the gym, you lift and then you run for 30 minutes uh, all in one session. And then the third way they ran it was just looking at studies where the endurance and resistance training took place in different sessions. So they could have been on different days. They could have been uh, on the same day, but like you lift in the morning, run in the evening or vice versa. Um, so they, they looked at it in, th in those uh, three different ways. So in, in their first meta-analysis, when it was just all effect sizes from all studies, they found that for untrained subjects, uh, concurrent training led to strength gains that were just as large as only doing resistance training. Um, for moderately trained subjects, there also wasn't a statistically significant effect, but there was an effect size of 0.2, p-value of 0.08, uh, favoring resistance training only for strength gains. And then for trained subjects, there was a, there was a significant effect. Small effect size, uh, Cohen's D of 0.35, and that was statistically significant. So basically, you see this pattern where the magnitude of the interference effect, or stated another way, the superiority of just doing resistance training versus concurrent training uh, got um, larger and larger as training status increased, such that there was virtually no effect for sedentary individuals and a small but statistically significant effect for trained individuals. So moving on, in the studies where endurance and resistance training were performed in the same training session, a similar pattern emerged, but the effect sizes were larger, particularly for the trained subjects. So for untrained individuals, again, virtually no effect. Um, for moderately trained subjects, you see a, a small to trivial effect, again, Cohen's D of 0.23, and again, not quite statistically significant, p-value of 0.14. But then for the trained subjects, you, you're, you're seeing now a pretty notable effect size of 0.66. Um, that's generally termed a, a moderate effect, not quite bordering on a large effect, which is typically typically going to be 0.8 uh, with, with the standard cutoffs. But that's, that's a relatively hefty moderate effect. Um, so especially for trained subjects, when you're doing concurrent training with both, uh, endurance training and lifting in the same session, there seems to be a pretty negative effect on strength outcomes. Uh, it, it, that's not to say you'll get weaker. You will continue getting stronger, but probably at a notably slower rate than you would have if you were just lifting and not doing endurance training. Uh, and then finally, um, when they, uh, just looked at studies where endurance and resistance training were performed in separate sessions, either separate times on the same day or on different days, they actually found no significant effect regardless of training status. So it seemed that just separating out the stimuli um, basically completely did away with the interference effect such that concurrent training was just as effective for strength development as only doing strength training was. Uh, so I'll note, I do think that um, in a meta-analysis like this, where, where basically you're just looking at two training variables, like did you just lift weights or did you lift weights and also do cardio, you're missing out on some degree of nuance. Like you're, you're not you're basically not able to look to see if the dose makes the poison, uh, as it were. So, 
you know, I, I wouldn't, I would not be an absolutist on this topic and say like, look, man, like if you're trying to win USAP, USAPL nationals and also complete an ultra marathon and train for both at the same time, you're definitely not going to have a negative effect on your strength gains. I, I don't think that that's a justifiable take. Um, most of these studies use pretty moderate levels of endurance training in them. So I, I think the average uh, frequency and duration was like 30 minutes of about 30 minutes of cardio about three times per week. So like that level of endurance training when combined with resistance training, if you're doing the endurance training and resistance training in separate sessions, doesn't seem to have a negative effect on strength development. Uh, but if you did considerably more endurance training, it probably would. Um, but at least this meta-analysis doesn't really give us any clues for where that threshold lies. Um, and the other thing I'll note just uh, related to this meta-analysis is when people talk about concurrent training, the first study they generally bring up, and for good reason, uh, is a study by Hickson from 1980. Uh, this, this is kind of the granddaddy of them all in the concurrent training literature title is interference of strength development by simultaneous by simultaneously training for strength and endurance. So the, the title of this study is where the term interference effect comes from. Uh, the study was from 1980. It was the first study um, rigorously looking at the interference effect and whether concurrent training uh, had negative effects on strength development. And so, yeah, this is the first study that people tend to cite. Um, and it has a pretty large effect. So um, in, in this meta-analysis, the Hickson study, the, the effect in favor of resistance training only over endurance training was about 0.61. Uh, and the subjects in that study were moderately trained, which again, I would probably refer to as untrained. So when you look at the total batch of effect sizes, from studies on moderately trained or untrained subjects in this meta-analysis, the pooled effect size for all of those is about 0.1. Uh, and the Hickson study, I believe, had the either the largest or second largest effect size of any study that had been done. Uh, and the effect size for that was about six times larger than the pooled effect size uh, of the other studies on untrained and moderately trained subjects. So it's it's very not representative of the body of literature, um, which isn't a knock on it. But th this relates to something we've talked about on the podcast before. And that is when a body of literature is just developing, you shouldn't necessarily assume that the average effect seen in the first couple of studies in the area are is going to be representative of where kind of the pooled effect estimate will wind up once more research is done. Uh, and it can go in both directions. So the typical way it goes is that early effect estimates are quite a bit larger than the eventual kind of pooled effect estimate that a body of literature settles on. Uh, and, and the reason for that is, well, there, there are several reasons for that. But one of the biggest ones is that most early research in a particular area is just kind of like proof of concept research, where if you are... Hickson, you're an enterprising researcher in 1980, and you think that doing concurrent training will lead to smaller strength gains than just doing resistance training. If that is your assumption, what you need to do is you need to publish research showing 
that this is an area of research that warrants further study. And so you're essentially trying, you're trying to design a study that will find a positive effect to validate the need for further research. And so I, I don't have the, the details in front of me right now, but if memory serves, the endurance training protocol in the Hickson study was one of the more challenging endurance training protocols that has been done in any concurrent training study up to this point. Um, so it, it was basically designed to find an effect. And then once that effect was found, future studies have kind of used more, uh, kind of more chill, more representative, I suppose, endurance training protocols and have found considerably smaller effects. Um, sometimes it can work in the opposite direction as well. So for example, if say a supplement comes on the market and they find that uh, maybe this has a small positive effect, it could, it could turn out to be that like a different form of the supplement could be more effective uh, it could be that the dose used in the first studies was too small. And so you could see an increase in the pooled effect estimate over time. But uh, the, the key point is just that, like, if there's only one or two studies in a body of literature, um, it very well could be the case that the effect they're seeing is a real effect. But the magnitude of the effect being reported may not necessarily be representative of where that body of literature will end up. Um, so that, that was just a little tidbit I pulled out of uh, the concurrent training meta. And then the final thing I want to talk about is uh, muscle damage um, and, and eccentric training in particular, but uh, more, more just like mitigation of muscle damage in general. Uh, so I wrote an article titled, Does Eccentric Training Always Cause More Muscle Damage? The title of the article I was reviewing was uh, eccentric exercise per se does not affect muscle damage biomarkers early and late phase adaptations uh, by a name I don't feel like trying to pronounce. Uh, <laughs> Out of respect. You, you wouldn't possibly disrespect them by... No, I'm going gonna, gonna to roll the dice. Margaritellis, maybe? Anyway, uh, so this study was pretty straightforward. They took a group of untrained in individuals, uh, split them in half, randomized them into groups, and had them do isokinetic knee extensions once once per week of t for 10 weeks. Uh, and all of these training sessions were just five sets of 15 maximal repetitions. And one group did five sets of 15 maximal concentric reps. So, you know, basically you set up the dynamometer to only move at a slow angular velocity and you just say kick, 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 kick as hard as you possibly can for five sets of 15 uh, concentric only. And then the other group did eccentric only reps. So again, you set the dynamometer at a slow angular velocity and it's going to flex your knee. And what you're trying to do is resist it with as much force as possible. Um, so over the 10 weeks, the researchers monitored uh, quite a few indirect markers of muscle damage. So uh, they assessed pain-free range of motion, uh, delayed onset muscle soreness, isometric peak torque at 90 degrees of knee flexion, concentric peak torque, eccentric peak torque, creatine kinase levels, uh, which is a, a indirect marker of muscle damage, and C-reactive protein levels, which is a marker of inflammation. Uh, they assessed all of those things for a couple of days after each training session throughout the entire 10-week protocol. Uh, and what they found is that for the first couple of training sessions, uh, they found exactly what you would expect. 
the eccentric training caused way more muscle damage than the concentric training for every marker of muscle damage and performance they looked at. So pain-free range of motion was decreased to a greater extent. Delayed onset muscle soreness was greater. Uh, isometric torque decreased to a greater extent. Concentric torque decreased to a greater extent. Eccentric torque decreased to a greater extent. Larger elevations in creatine kinase levels and larger elevations in C-reactive protein levels. So for the first three weeks of training, every single one of those markers indicated greater muscle damage for eccentric training than than concentric training. From weeks four to seven, it was kind of a transitional period where some of those indirect markers of muscle damage kind of dropped out of showing a difference between uh, exercise protocols. So like on week four, most of the markers still suggested more muscle damage with eccentric training, but now concentric peak torque changes post-training they didn't differ between groups anymore. By week six, you're no longer seeing differences in soreness, isometric peak torque, concentric peak torque, and C-reactive protein. And then uh, from weeks uh, eight to 10, you basically weren't seeing differences between exercise protocols at all. Um, there, there was no indication that the eccentric-only training was still causing more muscle damage than the concentric-only training. So... Uh, I I think that this was a pretty powerful illustration that uh, when we talk about the repeated bouts effect and the ability of muscles to protect themselves and become more resilient against muscle damage over time, uh, a kind of a, a question there is like, to what extent can those adaptations occur? Like what, what can the muscles kind of on the upper end of things protect themselves against to mitigate muscle damage? And this study suggests to me that they can, uh, that, that, that functionally there's limitless capacity. And, and the reason I say that is like, you know, the practical question is, can the repeated bout effect occur to such an extent that normal resistance training no longer causes really any significant level of muscle damage? And if they were finding... Uh, basically no indication that muscle damage was occurring by the end of 10 weeks in this study with that eccentric training protocol, that suggests to me that you can absolutely get to the point where virtually no muscle damage is occurring with just normal training. The reason I say that is this eccentric training protocol was, it's hard to overstate how much more brutal it was than anything that anyone would ever do in the gym for the purpose of just like normal resistance training. So you hear five sets of 15 and you think like, Oh, that's, uh, that's kind of high volume work. I think I'd be a little sore from that. Five sets of 15 is not the same thing as five sets of 15 maximal eccentric reps. Um, I mean like just one set of 15 maximal eccentric reps would, would probably, uh, cripple most people, no matter how well trained you are. If you did, like the first week of the eccentric training protocol here, I promise you, you would be wrecked for three or four days. Like that's, that's an enormous amount of eccentric stress. So if the subjects could fully kind of accommodate that after just 10 weeks of training, which uh, was just 10 sessions of training, because they were only training once per week, uh, that suggests that within kind of practical boundaries, uh, the repeated bout effect is is sufficient to 
to probably mitigate virtually all muscle damage that occurs. And so um, I, I think that this is very relevant for people who who wonder like, hey, man, I, I've been training consistently for a while. I used to get kind of sore after training. I don't really get sore anymore. Is that a sign that something is wrong? Probably not. Um, soreness significantly mitigating and and perhaps going away completely over time. That's a very normal outcome. Um, and, and it's perfectly fine. There, there's no strong evidence that soreness is particularly predictive of training outcomes. So, um, you know, that, that is a normal thing to expect and you shouldn't be concerned about it. Uh, conversely, you may be wondering like, hey, if the subjects here in this study uh, were, were basically mitigating all muscle damage after 10 weeks of training, why do I still get sore if I've been training consistently for a while? And I think probably the main contributor is just exercise variety or training variety. You know, you're changing rep ranges, you're changing exercise, you're maybe changing range of motion and how you're executing reps, et cetera. Um, and, and repeated bout effect related adaptations are both general and specific. So if you are someone who's reasonably well-trained in a particular style of training and you do a workout with a different style of training, um, you, you have some general protective adaptations such that you will probably be less sore following that training session than a completely untrained person would be. But uh, the adaptations are specific to some degree. So, you know, you don't, you don't have uh, full muscle damage resistance against all things that could possibly cause muscle damage. So, uh, a key component of this study was subjects did do the exact same exercise protocol every time. It was five sets of 15 maximal eccentric knee extensions um, at a fixed angular velocity um, through a fixed range of motion. So once you start changing variables around, uh, you are probably still causing some muscle damage uh, due to some degree of novelty and variety in your training. So, you know, it, it's it's reasonable to expect some degree of soreness moving forward, especially if training variables are shifting, but it's also very reasonable to expect uh, very, very substantial decreases in muscle soreness, perhaps going away entirely. Th those are both very, very normal uh, outcomes of training, and neither of them suggests that anything bad is going on. So if you've, if you've ever worried about anything related to soreness. Am I not getting sore enough? Am I getting too sore? It's probably fine. Everything's fine. You don't need to worry about it. Um, and then the last thing I want, I kind of wanted to draw out of this study is I think that these findings are relevant to the idea of training to failure. So um, one of the ideas that I think people have falsely gotten about me uh, is that I'm against training to failure, that, I, that I'm an anti-failure crusader. Um, and like, I'm just, I'm not. Uh, so I have argued multiple times uh, and will continue to do so that you don't need to train to failure uh, every set to maximize the per set hypertrophy uh, outcomes. Uh, if you're acquainted with the quote unquote effective reps model of hypertrophy, I've argued against that. I I don't think that the evidence substantiates it, and I think that there's a, a pretty reasonable amount of evidence against it. 
Um, but the the statement of I don't think you need to go to failure all the time to maximize hypertrophy is not the same as I am against training to failure. And in fact, I do most of my training to failure, um, not for squat bench deadlift, but for basically everything else, largely because I think it idiot proofs training. Um, like, you know, I don't want to have to think about my level of effort when I'm exercising. Um, you know, I, I, I think if I'm trying to think like, okay, what is the perfect submaximal amount of effort to exert to minimize the fatigue accumulated in this set, but maximize the hypertrophic adaptation in this set? I don't know. Some people maybe are into that. I'm fucking not, uh, like I'm going to think about it a little bit for my core lifts for everything else. I just want to turn my brain off and lift stuff like I like lifting stuff and making myself tired. That's, those are some of the things I love about training. Um, so I just don't want to have to think about it too, too hard. I think that training to failure largely idiot proofs your training. And when I'm training, I am an idiot. Um, now is that, is that failure failure or is it like volitional failure without digging into like my absolute top gear? That's like failure, failure. Okay. Um, it depends on the lift. Uh, like, I don't like being pinned by squats. Um, right. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's not my favorite thing. But for, I don't know, like dumbbell press, I'm just going to press until like I can't actually get the weights up anymore. And then I yeah. say, oh, well, I guess I'm done. No more reps. Yeah. Uh, tricep extensions, same thing. Just keep going. Once I can't lock it out, you know, I'm just going to bring the bar to my chest, close grip, press it up. So, yeah, I mean, like failure, failure. Um, so, yeah. And one of the because I, I just want to say I went back into your lifting videos. And when you claim to go to failure, I actually found that you had seven reps oh left in the God. tank. Oh, we're not we're not doing this. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, so people who are like actually anti failure training, the, the biggest argument they'll bring up is that there's, there's plenty of research. It's not, it's not even worth citing individual studies. There is a robust and flourishing body of evidence, uh, showing that when you train to failure, it causes, uh, larger decrements in performance pre to post training and uh, requires longer to recover from an exercise session than doing kind of uh, uh, non-failure training that's equated for reps or total volume load. And so, you know, people will argue that like the cost-benefit calcul calculus doesn't make sense here. If you can get just as much muscle growth not training to failure, uh, but when you train to failure you're causing more fatigue, you're taking longer to recover, and you're not really getting anything in return, that constitutes a strong reason to not go to failure in training and to advocate against really ever training to failure. Um, but I don't go that far. And and some of the findings from this study and you know prior to the study being published, just my own experience, constituted reasons why I don't necessarily buy that argument. Um, so, you know, if people can acclimate to five sets of 15 of maximal eccentric reps, I think people can fucking acclimate to training to failure um, such that like 
if you do if you do a study in in you uh, this kind of drifts off your point you made about muscle protein synthesis research. If you put people through unaccustomed exercise they're not used to, it's causing a lot of muscle damage. Maybe MPS isn't necessarily representative. I think the same thing applies to research looking at how different training variables impact muscle damage and fatigue and recovery from training, where if you're putting someone through an unaccustomed exercise protocol, their post-exercise response to that may not necessarily be representative of how their post-exercise response would look if they trained in that manner for a matter of weeks or months. And, and that's been my experience with, uh, with failure training. Like if, if I've been doing a highly specific block of powerlifting stuff with really no accessory work, um, and not doing basically any training to failure, then like, you know, when I, when I toss in some skull crushers and just like really push myself to the limits, my triceps are going to be fucked for three or four days after that. But then if I do it for like three weeks, four weeks or something like that, my triceps don't get sore anymore and they don't, they don't really seem to be any more fatigued post training than they would be if I didn't go to failure. So I, I think that this study indirectly supports that observation that, you know, most things that might cause more muscle damage than other things. And in this case, I'm talking about training to failure. I think if you do those things, whatever they are for, not even that extended of a period of time, but like, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight workouts. Um, I think eventually your body just adapts to it. You acclimate. It no longer causes that much additional muscle damage or fatigue and it's fine. So uh, I, and I, I could just be kind of playing into my own confirmation biases here because brother, you're never going to get me to, to estimate reps in reserve on a set of rear delt flies. I'm never going to do it. Yeah. Like that's always going to failure. Uh, and you know, if I'm wrong, if that's suboptimal, I don't fucking care. Cause I, <laughs> I am never going to tell you my RPE for a set of, of delt raises. It's always 10. It's only ever going to be 10. I'm not going to stop that shy of failure and you can't make me. And that's the point. That's what mass is all about. <laughs> it's a, it's about finding things that reinforce my biases <laughs> And then if someone disagrees with me, I threaten to fight them. Yeah. You can you can take the dumbbells out of my completely fatigued RPE 10 hands. Uh if if you try to make me stop earlier, you're gonna you're gonna have a dumbbell hurtling at your head from across the gym, and I will have no remorse. Um and any, that's an evidence-based perspective. Anyway, $21 a month. It's the lowest <laughs> prices of the year. Uh sign up now. Yeah. So uh, just to confirm your point, you know, you talked about <laughs> uh, the repeated bout effect being, you know, specific to the type of training mm -hmm. uh, to an extent. Uh, dude, this is insane. So bicep training, bicep curls are a staple in my training. They're, they just are. Uh, my 12 mile run the other day, dude, my biceps were sore because... <laughs> Uh, just it, from holding your arms in a running position, dude, it takes a long time to run 12 miles if you're me and yeah, a, a multiple hour isometric or, you know, <laughs> hour and a half isometric or however long it took me, not what I was training for, uh, not at all. And I, I was pretty stunned at how sore my biceps were, but, uh, I assume I'll adapt to that as well. Dude, you know what, you know, what always gets me what? 
So when I haven't played basketball for a while uh, and, and I go out and, and get a pretty good run in, um, one of the things that gets the most sore for me is my neck. Because uh, yeah. uh, like I, I have kind of a big neck. I don't really do any neck training. Um, I should. I, 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 I don't really like neck training, but I want to have a huge neck. Yeah. Anyway first world problems but anyway so i don't really do any neck training uh and when i go out and play basketball just from like changing directions like jumping landing kind of hard like there's like isometric forces trying to pull my head out of alignment that you know i'm i'm resisting in real time and uh so dude yeah like my my neck extensors always get so sore if i play basketball when i haven't in a while um I think that's kind of conceptually similar, just, just like soreness in a muscle that you that you wouldn't expect. Yeah. All right. So uh, it seems like we covered a lot of stuff there, but uh, we are really just scratching the surface when it comes to mass. Uh, if you subscribe to mass, you do get access to the entire archive. And we are now entering our sixth year of content uh, this upcoming January. Uh, so we're finishing up currently volume five, moving on to volume six. Each issue, it comes out every single month, has nine to 10 pieces of content. Uh, I think we're over the 400 mark in terms of the total number of pieces of content uh, last time I looked, but... I think it's like 550. So, okay, over 400, confirmed. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, yeah, there's so much information in there, so many pieces of content. uh, And like I said, if you do wish to subscribe, uh, the sale goes through November 29th. Uh, so before we wrap up the episode, I do want to answer a couple very quick Q and a questions and then we'll wrap up. Um, so the first one is from Marcus. Uh, the question is, do I have any concerns about upper limits for soy intake? Um, do I have any issues with getting, you know, a pretty substantial amount of your, your protein coming from soy? And the question asks, you know, up to like 1.6 or 2.2 grams per kilogram, all coming from soy protein. Usually when people ask this question, they have two concerns that are somewhat related. Uh, The first concern is about the potentially estrogenic Mm -hmm. side effects uh, related to soy isoflavones. Uh, And then people wonder, you know, is there potentially going to be some kind of like feminizing impact from, uh, from this estrogenic stuff? And then secondarily... And then then the second uh, opposite concern is, of course will it make my dick too hard? Correct. Yeah. The secondary concern related to that is, will it impact hypertrophy? You know, oh, to some extent. Yeah, that, yeah. Never mind. Sorry. Uh, so anyway, uh, it's a question that comes up a lot. And what's really will interesting, it make my whole body too turgid. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> the thing that is interesting about this is that I see a lot of answers that are extremely definitive one way or the other. And I kind of, uh, aim for the middle ground a little bit. So here's what I can say, and I'll I'll post some links in the description of today's show. Uh, Great study by our friend Cody Hahn, who's a a Stronger by Science coach. Uh, He he did a ton of really great work uh, when he was working on his PhD out at uh, at Auburn. Their lab does some really fascinating stuff. But uh, they were looking at different types of protein supplementation. uh, And in this case, uh, I think the the title kind of gives it away. The paper is called Soy Protein Supplementation is Not Androgenic or Estrogenic in College-Aged Men When Combined with Resistance Exercise Training. So even at doses up to about 80 grams per day of soy protein, 
uh, they did not observe any estrogenic effects uh, that that would be physiologically meaningful. Uh, there's also a meta-analysis of 15 randomized controlled trials that I'm aware of indicating that uh, soy protein supplementation had no significant effect on total testosterone, free testosterone, uh, or sex hormone blind, uh, binding globulin. Uh, and within those RCTs, uh, the, the, the soy protein content was typically between 10 and 70 grams of soy protein. Uh, and the isoflavone content, which is what people are largely focused on, was between like 60 to 240 milligrams. So based on that, a lot of people say there's absolutely no connection there. Uh, under no circumstance could there be a, a concern or, or uh, should it be a consideration whatsoever? I'm not quite prepared to go that far just because like we've talked about this in various places, but I tend to be more of an empiricist. Uh, you know, I, I, I like empirical arguments more than trying to rationalize my way to an argument. So when I can lean on empirical data, I much prefer to. I feel more comfortable with it. Um, so I feel very, com extremely comfortable that with doses up to like 80 grams a day of soy protein, I really don't have concerns, especially if the isoflavone content of that soy protein product is staying within that range I mentioned. Uh, there are a couple case studies that have been published case studies. You take them with a grain of salt, but, uh, you know, people who are consuming up to like 360 milligrams of soy isoflavones per day for like six to 12 months at a time where uh, they, they have noted some adverse effects uh, that that could be considered a bit estrogenic in nature uh, or kind of linked to these estrogenic concerns. So um, there are case studies out there uh, and you can put whatever stock you want into those, but uh, up to like 80 grams a day, I feel extremely confident. Uh, and then when it comes to the hypertrophy stuff, uh, I mentioned that that study previously, looking at hypertrophy over the course of a uh, 12-week resistance training program. Um, the, the, the vegan group who was supplementing with soy protein uh, had extremely similar uh, training adaptations in terms of hypertrophy. So leg lean mass, whole muscle cross-sectional area, muscle fiber cross-sectional area, strength, all those training adaptations were quite similar and they were getting 0 0.8 grams per kilogram per day, uh, purely from soy protein. Um, it, it did just based on their weights. It, I think it ended up being like 57 or 58 grams a day. So just from an empirical perspective, I feel extremely comfortable, you know, that up to 80 grams a day or, you know, up to like half of your protein for the day coming purely from soy, uh, simply doesn't seem to be an issue for any of any concerns within this kind of umbrella of topics. Uh, when you start doubling those numbers, I simply don't know. Uh, I don't know if you have a strong opinion on that, but um, I, I like to be more guided by empirical evidence when possible. And this just kind of seems to be where it ends in, in controlled trials is with doses up around 80 grams a day. Here's what I have a strong opinion about. So couple of times friends have come over and I've been making little treats. Okay. Uh, I, you know, the story you were here. Um, so make, making some little treats uh, like, uh, like fried chicken, either chicken wings or like little, uh, uh, like popcorn chicken or whatever. And then for vegetarian and vegan friends, some, uh, 
similarly either battered or breaded and fried and then sauced soy puffs. Yes. And I got to say, this is coming from a completely inveterate omnivore that loves meat. I like it. It's good. The fucking fried soy puffs are, are better than every other meat option that has been available every time that I've uh, like prepared and fried and sauced the same thing. Like yeah. uh, the, the soy puffs beat out chicken. Uh, they beat out like I, I made some just insane fried meatballs, but then also made some fried soy puffs. The fucking soy puffs were better. I got to say, man, culinarily, they're they're incredible because they're just like they're they're puffs. There's a lot of air in them. They can soak up any flavor. Uh, they have an excellent texture and mouthfeel. So, um, yeah, uh, my only strong opinion about soy is that if you're if you're an omnivore and you're a foodie and uh, you have some vegetarian or vegan friends coming over and you're like, ah, like, I don't know what sort of of meat substitute or meat alternative to have. If you were going to make a little a little fried treat, uh, just just using whatever recipe you were going to use otherwise, but subbing in whatever meat option you were going to have for soy puffs, swear to God, best decision you'll ever make. And you will probably also like the soy puffs better than than the meat option. They're they're so good. They're incredible. You know, another time that happened, uh, there have been some cases where you've made uh, a mushroom based version of something uh, as opposed to a meat based version. There have been instances where the mushroom version is better. Uh, mushrooms are also very good. Mushrooms are very good. So I think a lot of people, when they consider, uh, you know, incorporating more vegetarian meals, they're like, well, I have officially departed from fl- Flavor Town and I can never go back. Uh, and that's really not the case. Uh, there, there's some really nice options. But uh, just to kind of put a little anecdote on top of this, uh, you know, I still consume whey protein for, I believe, reasons we've discussed on the podcast. Like, I think uh, from a ethical and environmental standard uh, viewpoint, it kind of fits within my... Uh, I'm comfortable with it from, from those perspectives, uh, just because a, a lot of the whey that goes into whey protein powder seems to be essentially just a byproduct of conventional dairy food production that they're, they're just going to kind of get rid of either way. Uh, so I don't lose a lot of sleep over having a lot of protein coming from whey protein supplements, but I do eat a lot of soy protein coming from things like soy crumbles. That that's my main source of soy protein that I get often. Have I ever once counted how many grams I'm getting from soy? Absolutely not. Uh, so I, I try to separate out like from a purely empirical point of view, there are case reports trending in that direction with extremely high intakes and very well controlled trials showing no such effect up to about 80 grams a day. Would I start getting nervous if I had a hundred grams a day coming from soy products? I definitely wouldn't. Uh, I'm pretty comfortable that unless you have a truly anomalous intake of soy, uh, you're probably not going to run into these types of concerns. That that would be my my estimation. But to make that estimation, you do have to deviate from the empirical evidence a little bit. Now, one other thing I, I, I wanted to mention here, or another uh, question I wanted to answer before we wrap up. This question is from Jake. Uh, the question is, is curious to hear about uh, evidence regarding different types of liquid carb sources 
intra-workout. Uh, so sometimes this individual, Jake, trains for over two hours in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, has uh, been trying a poly polysaccharide product made from potato, rice, and corn. And this is something that really got big in the fitness world, these kind of designer carbohydrates and Highly branch cyclic dextrin. Exactly. You'd hear about these products. and High they, molecular weight carbohydrate. You'd hear about molecular weight. That was always a yep. big selling point. And they'd talk about the exact branched structure of the the uh, the starch polymer of a, of a particular product. Um, I got to be honest. So I, I did uh, publish one study on uh, kind of like designer carbohydrate back in grad school. At that time, I had looked into the literature and I had never seen anything that was particularly uh, spectacular from some of these designer carbohydrate products. I'd never seen anything where I was like, wow, that, that is a huge deal and makes a big difference. Uh, I haven't revisited that literature in detail in a while, but I honestly don't think you can do much better than a very simple 6 to 8% carbohydrate solution. Uh, the total amount of carbohydrate you would ingest ultimately depends on the volume and the intensity of the work that you're doing. And of course, by extension, the duration as well. So, I mean, you know, 30 grams an hour, maybe up to 60 grams an hour, unless you're doing really prolonged, really intense stuff. That's usually plenty to get you through. Uh, and when it comes to, like I said, a six to 8% carbohydrate solution as a beverage, I think, you know, if you're only having like 30 grams per hour, the exact source of carbohydrate doesn't really seem to matter that much. Uh, but if you're the more that you ramp up your intake in grams per hour, the more you have to think about transporters in the gut. And so glucose and fructose are transported a little bit differently. So when you start really pushing the carb intake intra workout, you have to consider what's going to be uh, very efficiently taken up into systemic circulation you also have to consider what's going to be uh easier on your gut in terms of reducing gi distress so that that's why i do like to have a liquid uh source of carbs in order to get around some of those considerations a really simple way to do it is to have a, a ratio of approximately two to one when you're considering your carb source and thinking in the digestion process, what simple sugar is, is this going to end up being before it's absorbed? Usually uh, a, a ratio of two parts glucose to one part fructose is a good place to start. Um, and so what I mentioned here, six to 8% carbohydrate, approximately two to one ratio of glucose to fructose, you're going to find similar stuff in pretty, pretty much any commercial sports beverage that isn't like the special zero or low carb version. So if you were to just get like a regular Gatorade or Powerade or whatever is big these days, it's probably going to be pretty close to fitting these criteria. And this is pretty much what the evidence would push you towards. So for me personally, if I was, I know it doesn't sound very interesting or sophisticated or nuanced, but like if I was going to do some stuff that needed some intra-workout carb, I'd probably grab a Gatorade. Uh, and I think there's probably a reason why like in high level sport, that is a very common way to go with it. Have you looked into any of the research uh, suggesting that if you consume highly branched cyclic dextrin during your workout, 
the increased gains you're going to experience will be quote nothing less than shocking no where, where was that published uh t nation okay uh, on on the plasma sales page so uh whenever i think about this stuff i always think about the t nation uh sales campaign when they launched plasma their reactive pump supplement so uh let's just read from from these research findings that they that they published on their sales page the plasma formula also contains highly branched cyclic dextrin which is a specialized carbohydrate that significantly increases metabolic rate and performance levels research shows that highly branched cyclic dextrin benefits athletes in these powerful ways increases vo2 max and time to exhaustion in elite swimmers makes intense exercise actually feel easier, decreases stress hormone levels following exhaustive exercise, provides rapid hydration and nutrient loading without increasing gastric emptying time, and increases endurance to fatigue by 27% over glucose supplementation and doesn't spike insulin in comparison. Taking timed plasma doses before, during, and after training loads the muscles with key anabolic nutrients, a.k.a glucose for maximize Does it say aka glucose no that's okay i'm ad-libbing i'm 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 riffing yeah uh for maximizing performance and enhanced recovery the term for this the term so here here comes some specialized some specialized jargon the term for this muscle engorging effect is called the quote reactive pump the reactive pump makes muscle hyper responsive to nutrient uptake and hyper-responsive to growth signaling. It also provides you with unbreakable performance in the gym and competition. By uniquely preloading and pumping key nutrients into muscle, plasma doses enable you to perform at and beyond your limits. There are no limits. You can exceed them now. Uh, While recovering so fast, you'll be excited to go back to the gym. Not only that, the increased gains you're going to experience from plasma pulsing will be nothing less than shocking. So anyway, um, I, I mean, I think I think they published this research <laughs> back in uh, like fucking 2011 or something. It was a so blind spot. Yeah. You're you might be you might be a little bit behind <laughs> the the cutting edge empirical findings here. Fair enough. Uh, we will teach it as a controversy then, dude. I I loved. I think we've talked about this before. One of my soft spots is I love supplement marketing. I think it's <laughs> I think it's so fucking funny. And yeah. that that area of or that era of T Nation was the best. Yeah. Because like first they come out with Anaconda delivering the anabolic load. I don't need to spell out the subtext there, <laughs> but it was basically just like, what if we put together every supplement we sell into a protocol where like your supplement your supplement stack per workout is going to run you about eight bucks or whatever. And it's like, well, okay, that's shameless, shameless cash grab. Very funny marketing. What you got next? What they had next was Indigo 3G, which is a basically a blueberry extract <laughs> that they were treating as if it was like a state secret where yeah. like the, the early buyers, they uh, sent them a single bottle and like a special Kevlar case. Um, so that that was a very funny rollout for something that that was just like an anthocyanin extract, uh, and then the the end of this golden era of biotest marketing was plasma, which is literally just like a starch supplement that they're just 
And and most of the marketing leading up to it was just like they they take prominent individuals in the fitness community and somehow get them to say, man, I've been training hard and I've been growing a lot of muscle more than I expected. And somehow I'm getting too lean. Yeah. I can't stop myself getting leaner. I'm consuming effectively sugar throughout my entire workout. <laughs> and somehow I just can't stop getting shredded. Yeah. Uh, God, that was, that was the best. They've really, they've really fallen off. I don't know how the business is doing, but uh, they have not made as audacious of supplement claims recently. And honestly, I miss it. I, yeah. my, I have a bio test new supplement launch sized hole in my heart yeah. that can only be filled by a new completely audacious biotest supplement. Their next one was brain candy, which was basically just like a, like a, basically like a five hour energy with some theanine in it. And like, I'm sure it was fine, but like it wasn't as funny. There were no anabolic loads being delivered. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the marketing wasn't as over the top. So uh tc if you're listening to this hit us hit us with some more of the crazy shit double I, down i need the crazy shit i need i need the anabolic load 2.0 yeah um anyway so i will say i missed the days when because all that <laughs> stuff was hitting when we were like young yes. and i i remember getting ripped off uh from all the supplement claims from various companies but at least it was at least i had hope in my heart yeah. you know I, I would buy like I would literally literally switch from one pre-workout to another pre-workout that had a virtually identical set of ingredients. And I'd be like, maybe this is going to be my secret weapon. You know, <laughs> like maybe this is what puts me over the over the hump here. Uh, I, I very much do miss that type of optimism. Uh, and of course, the entertainment value is yeah. exceptional. Uh, okay, so I think that does it for this episode. But to play us out, I had... a a tip I wanted to share with people. I'm curious to see what you do for this, but I've been searching far and wide for the perfect stuff to listen to while I'm working. So when I'm like writing or reading and just doing general desk work stuff. And I used to try to do uh, regular music with lyrics. Can't do it. Too distracting. Try to do podcasts. Once again, too distracting. Can't really tune it out effectively. Uh, even a lot of music without words, I, I find to be too distracting. You know what I mean? There's, you, you got the changes in tempo and volume. You've got the the crescendos and the staccatos and stuff, and I'm I'm too tapped into it. Uh, but I was on Spotify the other day, and I found a jazz playlist that is specifically framed as being oriented for the mornings. This is not afternoon jazz this is certainly not evening time jazz this is morning jazz and it has been the most valuable thing i've ever discovered like when i'm working it there is nothing better than it so if you are like me and you've been searching for the perfect thing to kind of tune out while you're working jazz will do but it's got to be that morning jazz uh, but what do you listen to when you're trying to do that type of work i listen to synth wave synth wave i assume there's no lyrics at all right uh for the most part no okay i mean there is some synth wave with lyrics but i i get the no lyric stuff okay and you'd give that an enthusiastic recommendation i assume i would if you'd like to stick your toes in that water there is a uh 
I don't know if it's a group or an individual. I haven't looked into it too closely. Uh, but uh, the the band on Spotify is Home H O M E. Um, I I discovered them because there is a uh, speed running channel on YouTube I like called Summoning Salt, and the uh, outro music for for all of his videos is a song called We're Finally Landing by Home. And uh, I was listening to it one time. I was like, dude, this would be sick to work to. So uh, started with Home and just looked at uh, similar artists on Spotify, put together a playlist I call Focus Songs. And uh, yeah, helps me focus. It's good stuff. All right. Good stuff. Uh, so that does it for this episode. Uh, as always, thank you for joining us. Uh, if you happen to celebrate Thanksgiving, we hope you enjoyed it. We hope you have safe travels. If you're traveling, take care. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do. So we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.